Welcome to Brookfield Perspectives, a podcast from Brookfield that explores how the firm invests in the backbone of the global economy. What do we mean by that? The things you interact with every day that you may not even think about, like wind turbines, water treatment facilities, cell towers, and office buildings. Investing in these critical assets helps support and accelerate the pace of progress in businesses and communities around the world. I'm Lauren Steffi, and I've been writing about energy and investing for the better part of three decades. I'll be your guide as we meet the business leaders at one of the world's largest alternative asset managers. We'll talk about how to spot trends early, what it takes to turn contrarian ideas into opportunities, and how to uncover the next great company. And we'll go on site where the rubber meets the road at innovative companies and projects around the globe. Today, we're talking about building energy resilience. It's a task that became increasingly urgent after Russia invaded Ukraine last year. Governments are focusing on the security of the energy supply, and demand is rising for the transportation and storage of lower carbon-emitting commodities, such as natural gas and hydrogen. My guests today are Ignacio Paz Ares Aldonado, who leads M&A for Brookfield Renewable in Europe, and Patrick Fragman, CEO of Westinghouse. Westinghouse is a leading provider of mission-critical technology, services, and products to the nuclear industry. Brookfield's private equity business acquired the company in 2018. Recently, in 2022, Brookfield announced that its renewable power business was partnering with Kamiko, one of the world's largest providers of uranium fuel, to acquire Westinghouse. Ignacio and Patrick will discuss how to build energy resilience and where nuclear fits into the picture of overall decarbonization and energy security goals. To kick off the conversation, I ask both of them to define the term energy security, beginning with Ignacio. Energy security is really the ability to produce power in-house within a country. And this is not just the actual physical power generation, but also the availability of the inputs that are required to produce that power, generally gas, coal, wind, solar, and so on. But the renewable ones like wind, solar, and hydro are really the only ones that almost every country can produce in-house. And this is why renewables is so key for energy security. In addition to that, there is a dimension of availability and continuity of supply. And in that sense, energy security touches energy independence or national security in many countries. And this continued availability of supply at an affordable price, whether it's electricity or steam, is also essential to many countries to enable them to operate correctly. Energy security also captures forms of if you are in an area where you want to rely on local sources, for instance, let's say a microgrid, you might want to make sure that you have ways to ensure availability of supply and continuity of supply 24-7. I use the image of a microgrid as a local system which incorporates all the vital functions to enable a local area. It might be an island, it might be a remote community, it might be several buildings to operate either autonomously or semi-autonomously. You might still have a grid connection, but definitely you want to operate most of the time in an autonomous manner, having your own generation, your own means to ensure stable supply of energy. Part of the reason we're talking about energy security as much as we are now is obviously the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How has that impacted the thinking and the action around energy security on a global scale? 
This has impacted all the countries and forced them to rethink the way they were defining their energy security. And it's not only the countries who had physical or direct links to Russia. From Japan and Korea to Belgium, it forced to rethink the energy strategies. And in particular, the space that nuclear energy and renewables can have in the energy mix in the long run. So countries that had a large reliance on fossil especially reliance on fossils coming from external sources, not only Russia, but also other foreign producers, are definitely rethinking now their long-term energy stability. If you just take a step back and look to the last 30 years, as globalization has evolved, most of the countries got used to have access to global commodity supply with very little or no interference. And I think with both COVID and the Ukraine conflict, we have realized that supply can eventually be cut and countries have realized that they really need to have fallback option for that. And nuclear power is one of those options. I asked Patrick what role nuclear will play in the future, especially in Europe. Quite a few countries in Eastern Europe are trying to continue to operate their Soviet-type reactors, which were built before the wall came down. There are 33 of those reactors operating in Eastern European countries in Finland, where until recently, there was a large reliance on Russian suppliers. So those countries are rethinking their supply chains. Westinghouse is, for instance, the only alternative, the only Western alternative to Russian suppliers for fuel for those Soviet-type reactors. And we're helping those countries, not only in the region, but also more broadly in the world, to build new capacities because electricity is becoming the fuel of choice. And those countries, they also need steam. In the future, they will need hydrogen for transportation. And all of this can be achieved by new nuclear reactors, but they need not only to do life extensions, they also need new capacity. And this is where we can help them on both sides. So it sounds like what we're looking at here is not just a trend or a specific reaction to a moment in time, but this is part of a longer ongoing shift in the way we think about sustainability and resilience and that sort of thing. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah. The war in Ukraine magnified things that were already fairly clear to many experts, that the previous system was unsustainable and needed to be strongly reshaped. Definitely, it made it also an emergency to many countries who were largely dependent in particular on Russian supplies. But it was a kind of haha moment for many countries in the world who didn't necessarily want to see the realities of the energy systems, the way they were shaped. I totally agree with Patrick there. There were really strong trends prior to the Ukraine conflict around net zero and deployment of more kind of green energy. But from that noise to the real action, there was a little bit of lag. And I think this has really been the trigger to start seeing that real action on the ground. It's interesting that you mention some of that because in our first story arc, we were looking at decarbonization and it definitely feels like what we're talking about today builds on some of that that in fact we're seeing the intersection of energy security as well as the drive to net zero. Talk a little bit about that. I think we already had all different stakeholders aligned pushing for net zero, but I think energy independence has just provided that last push that was really required to start seeing things moving on the ground. Nuclear energy working hand in hand with renewables has many benefits. 
Obviously, it was put in the forefront by energy security concerns that came initially in the 70s. That's where the big push in the Western countries was for the deployment of nuclear energy. And now, obviously, we have a reminder of that with the crisis in Ukraine. But it's not only enabling to supply electricity to the nations. As I was mentioning earlier, many countries do need the steam for district heating for their industrial processes. And they need clean steam in the future. If you talk to oil and gas suppliers or steel mills, they are really wondering how they will achieve their net carbon zero goals by 2050. And without 24-7 type of power supply coming from large hydro or nuclear with a mix of renewables in addition, it will be hard for them to get there. The other piece is hydrogen. If we look at transportation in the future and assuming that hydrogen will be one of the few sources that will enable to massively decarbonize at scale the transportation sector on land, definitely a clean way to generate hydrogen is renewable and or nuclear energy altogether. It's also about mobile sources on sea. And right now we're working on smaller type of reactors that could also enable to fit that. We also have a contract with NASA to look at how to put a small power module on the moon, which will enable to operate for 10 years without interruption. So you put together the cocktail of renewable and nuclear working hand in hand, and it does enable to tick all the boxes, not only in terms of energy security, competitiveness of energy supply, but also obviously of decarbonization. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because one of the problems with net zero standalone was the intermittency of renewables. With energy security and nuclear coming to the equation, that intermittency can be tackled by the base load capabilities that nuclear can provide. So, Patrick, give us some examples of some nuclear projects that you have in the works or that you see in the works around the world and how that fits into this broader issue of a hybrid solution that we were talking about. Take the case of Poland. Poland has about 40 gigawatts of fossil-based thermal generation to decommission to achieve their net carbon zero goals, actually by 2040 for power generation. And they have already made the decisions to both have a deployment of renewable and at the same time deploy at scale reactors that would enable them to achieve clean, secure and competitive electricity and power for the whole economy. So that's a good example of a strategy which has already been reshaped years ago, which obviously is being accelerated by the recent events. Take the case of many Western countries who have a fleet of nuclear reactors that need to continue to operate for many decades, and they can do that securely. Those countries are now making decisive steps to extend the life of their plants. In the US, many plants are reaching 80 years of age, and now we are starting to talk about 100 years of age. And frankly, those reactors are completely fitted for that in a safe and secure way. I asked Patrick and Ignacio how the concept of demand response plays into this. Demand response programs typically provide financial incentives for consumers to use less energy during peak periods. Well, you can put demand response if you have to face a short-term crisis or a short-term spike where your reserve margin is drastically shrinking. You cannot build an economy and grow an economy based on demand response because at the end of the day, as you stated rightly, it's about curtailing the economic activity to enable other users to get their supplies. So it cannot be a model of development in the long term. So I want to back up and get another definition here because I know I've been using the term resiliency and I think it's come up a few times in the conversation. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between energy security and energy resiliency, how they're different and how they overlap. They have many things in common. For instance, the fact that you need an uninterrupted 
availability of energy supplies definitely builds to your resiliency. But there are also other notions which are encapsulated inside the resiliency. For instance, the fact that it can resist under stress. The grids are designed today in many countries, especially the Western countries, to be able to manage loss of generation in some areas of the grid to enable also the fact that you might have lots of intermittency. So the case for high penetration of renewable now is becoming enabled because the grids have technologies which enable them to take into account this high variability of the loads. And for instance, these different impacts that you have on system inertia, on the frequency control, on voltage control, which are linked to the impact of renewables. So there is a notion of stability under stress which is now enabled by technology, which can be effectively designed as the future energy systems are being put together. And I think energy security is bringing a lot of intermittent generation to the grids in the form of new renewables. And in the past, we haven't been used to manage so much intermittent technologies. And I think as that penetration increases more and more, that resiliency of the grid concept is going to become more and more important. And we're going to need more flexible generation. I want to bring in the global supply chain and how that fits into all this. We're talking about all these different materials, solar, wind, batteries, etc. All of that stuff has to be made places. In terms of the supply chain, does that add to the security or does it create new vulnerabilities that we're going to have to adapt to? I think it's the exact same as onshoring power generation. I think countries are also trying to onshore other steps of the value chain to not only have more control of that energy generation, but also building that energy infrastructure. And most of these components or materials to build new renewables, for instance, like solar modules are coming from places like China. And we're seeing a lot of countries, especially the US, pushing to bring some of those manufacturing facilities in-house. And I think there are countries really willing to give up a little bit on price competitiveness, securing access to supply. And this particularly is not something new today with the Ukraine conflict, but I think it already started a little bit through COVID. One aspect we need to keep in mind is all the fuels are not equal in terms of being dependent on a certain number of critical minerals, rare earth, and all those materials. Some of the forms of energy generation or storage are unfortunately more exposed. Take the case of lithium-ion storage. Right now, Western countries are starting to think on reintegrating mining activities on their territories, which is the reverse of the movement which had been done during decades. And this should help to alleviate some of those concerns. The reality is when you look also at the environmental impact of a fuel, you have to take into account the life cycle side effects of how those materials are mined and also at the end of the cycle, how those equipments or materials are effectively decommissioned and disposed of. So this is the overall notion of life cycle assessment for each of those fuels. As we're talking about lithium, I'm thinking as technology evolves, is this idea of sustainability, resiliency, is that being incorporated into some of the technological approaches? For example, with batteries, there's a lot of talk that the next generation will be sodium ion, which won't require as many rare earth minerals and things like that. Are we going to see more of those kinds of technologies develop that are perhaps more sustainable in nature than what we're seeing now? Absolutely. Westinghouse is developing a long-duration energy storage technology, which is a non-nuclear technology for 12 hours or more, which is 
absolutely getting rid of all those type of material and using fairly simple, available standard material. It's a thermal-based technology, which basically uses a heat pump and some concrete as a medium to store the energy and to retrieve it from. This is a way to get out of this type of dependency and at the same time address a need, which is long duration storage, which technologies like lithium ion cannot necessarily answer and fulfill. And Ignacio, what about other new products that you're seeing out there or new technologies that are being developed? New technologies like hydrogen or carbon capture, we're all big believers on them and we're continuing monitoring them on a daily basis because we think at some point they will become more cost competitive and the rollout or the deployment of those technologies will become larger in scale. Patrick, is there another new product that Westinghouse is rolling out that falls under this category? I think on the storage side, the long duration energy storage is a non-nuclear technology, but we have also our nuclear battery, which is called Evinci, which is being developed as we speak and we plan a deployment by 2027. It's going to be a nuclear reactor very small one, three to five megawatt electrical operating without being interrupted 24-7, 365 for eight years. And this can be ideally used in remote areas, on ships, or in many different types of applications. This is going to be a fantastic innovation. One of the more recent innovations in nuclear technology is the ability to deploy smaller modular reactors, also known as SMRs. I asked Patrick how this is being rolled out. Developers like Westinghouse, who have a heritage and who have a background and experience in licensing reactors, are basically building on their experience. For instance, our AP1000 technology, which is the most advanced technology being deployed today. We have four units in operation, two more will soon be operation in the US and six more in China. This technology, which has passive safety features, which is very efficient and cost effective, is the backbone of the SMR deployment that we're also launching as we speak. The AP300 is designed to build on this legacy of the AP1000 and make sure that effectively not only do we have a fully safe reactor, but it's also cost-effective. It's as efficient as its father. Another interesting aspect of the business is non-nuclear technology. I asked Patrick about Westinghouse's research in this area and the practical applications. We have about 1,200 people who are involved in our research and development activities. We have in particular on the digital front many partnerships ongoing, but also in new technologies on the nuclear side. And by scouting, trying those technologies, either game changers or incremental innovation, it enables also to pressure test when we are discussing with customers or when we're discussing with the people who understand the customer needs for the long term to pressure test what should we focus on and what should we maybe put on the back burner. Not only are we developing solutions for the operating fleet, so to enable the reactors to continue to operate in a safe and efficient manner, whether we're talking new fuels, whether we're talking new services for outages or for enabling the reactors to extend their operations, but we're also developing all those suites of new reactors from the very large AP1000 to the small Evinci and the AP300, and at the same time, extending our reach to non-nuclear technology. In addition to the long-duration energy storage I was mentioning earlier, we're also developing a technology to enable to produce radioisotopes inside nuclear reactors. We already signed an agreement on Cobalt-60 
And those radioisotopes have many different types of use. Food sterilization, medical uses, for instance, treatments against cancer, which are in great needs today. The quantities of radioisotopes available are not sufficient to cure all the cancers that could be cured. So it's very exciting what nuclear technologies and non-nuclear technologies can help to achieve. Before wrapping up our conversation, I asked Patrick and Ignacio what has surprised them most about nuclear and renewable energy in the past few years. I think the exciting piece is A, the speed. The nuclear industry 20, 30 years ago was a slow moving type of industry. Times have completely changed. We move super fast because our markets and our environments are moving fast and our customers have to move fast. And the second place would be the range of technologies that are right now needed when you design a new product or innovation. And I was mentioning digitalization. We invest a lot of efforts and money in this area. So you need this type of open innovation model, which again, was not exactly the model in which nuclear and nuclear technologies were developed 30 years ago, but that's the model in which Westinghouse is navigating today. I think more on the renewable side, we knew the deployment of renewables was going to become large in scale, but I think the acceleration of that deployment has really positively surprised all of us. I think a few years ago, let's say five, six years ago, speaking about building one, two gigawatts of renewables was really, really large numbers. I think today we're just speaking about building multi-gigawatt of renewables on an annual basis. This has really been a result of two things. One is really having all stakeholders pushing on the same direction. I think previously or a few years ago, there were still some questions around renewables. And I think second, how the cost curve for renewables has come down and how competitive these technologies are today from a cost perspective that they don't really need subsidies from governments anymore to survive, but that they can just do it on a merchant basis or with support from corporate offtake contracts. So we're just on the start of the journey. And I think we've been surprised with the acceleration on the last few years. Patrick and Ignacio agree that as countries tackle the challenges of decarbonization and energy security, nuclear is here to stay. People now look at nuclear energy, rediscovering the virtues of nuclear energy, which frankly were always there. And this change of mindset is highly influenced by the way politicians, the media opinion leaders are portraying nuclear energy. And what you see now is in all those categories of people, more and more vocal players basically mentioning the virtues of nuclear energy as a way to help tick all the boxes we were discussing earlier, which is decarbonizing our societies, enabling also to support the growth of our economies, and at the same time ensure energy security and job security and competitiveness. I mean, take a country like Finland, which has grown over several decades a very strong public support where the Greens are pro-nuclear. For me, this is a model of country which effectively has managed to look at the realities and look at what makes sense for the country and at the same time have a very environmentally friendly path of modernizing its energy system. Renewables are intermittent. We've discussed this before, but to tackle that intermittency, a baseload green technology like nuclear it's just going to come naturally. So we obviously have storage to fight against that. We also have hydrogen to do that. But I think nuclear needs to be in that mix. That's all for today's episode. Thanks to Ignacio and Patrick for sharing their perspectives. 
For more conversations about deglobalization, be sure to check out the other episodes in this arc, available wherever you're listening.